Everybody else, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 in your Bibles, and we're going to pick up where we left off with last week's Bible study. I'm going to try to make it all the way through Isaiah 40. It's a long chapter, a lot of really good stuff here, and so um, right, let's, uh, let's, let's get into it. We've got about 40, 45 minutes. We'll see how far we go. All right, the Campbells did make it in tonight. We did mention the passing of Roger a little bit ago, and just want you to know we're praying for you guys, both uh, corporately as a church, and I'm praying for it as well. I'm sure many others are, but please know that uh, you're in our prayers during this time. Isaiah 40. All right, we're going to look at the first eight verses to start. This will help get us going back into the Bible study. If you can, stand for the reading of God's Word, and let's look at the first eight verses there. The Bible says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and Cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And that's about how far we made it last week. So let's have a word of prayer. We'll do a really, really quick review and then get into the rest of the chapter. God, thank you for your word. It is uh, so well put together. Uh, it is um, the, the best selling book ever. And for very obvious reasons, Lord, it is um, uh, an ocean of of goodness that uh, we cannot find the bottom of. It is uh, a, a rule book to help us know how to stay inside of uh, a moral code that keeps us safe. It is a love letter that tells us of your son who died for us. It is so wonderful and so great. Words cannot even begin to explain how great it is. But, Lord, we open it tonight and we, we, we search the truths in it to help make ourselves better and help us appreciate you more. So may we be locked in. May we pay attention. Be with everything else going on around the property right now. Be with each teacher, each preacher. Uh, Lord, uh, may it all be used to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we said last week that Isaiah is divided into two sections. It's a part one and part two. Uh, the first 39 books make up part one. It was written by Isaiah to his contemporaries, those around him that lived when he lived, concluding with the last four chapters, 36 through 39, dealing with the story of Hezekiah, the life of Hezekiah. And uh, then we move into chapter 40, and Isaiah would write prophetically to the Israelites that would leave captivity after the Babylonian fall and would then move into um, uh, time moving forward up through the life of Jesus. And just as Isaiah is divided into uh, 39 and 27, the Bible is divided into the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books. And just as the New Testament opens with John the Baptist... Coming on the scene, introducing Christ, chapter 40 begins with a prophecy of John the Baptist and a prophecy 
of Jesus Christ. And so we began by looking at verse 1, and uh, we looked at verses 1 and 2, and we saw, by the way, the title of our study is God is Greater Than Our Circumstances. The title will make more sense as we go along tonight. Number one, we saw God's mercy. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me again. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her war... Fair is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Israel has been thoroughly punished for their idolatry, for their turning away from God, for their uh, spiritual adultery, if you will. They have been thoroughly punished after the Babylonian captivity, and now it is time for God to show his mercy. Number two, we, we looked at God's messengers God's messengers. Uh, We said letter A, the prophecy of John the Baptist. Look with me at verse number 3. Isaiah 40 and verse 3 says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And uh, we saw in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 23, that when John the Baptist was questioned about who he was, he referenced back to this chapter in Isaiah 40, and he said, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. I am but a voice crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist was the completion of, of this prophecy. And so I want you to imagine you're a Jew and you've been in Babylonian captivity now. Maybe you were born there. And say you're in your 30s and it's time for you to make the trek from Babylon back to Jerusalem where you're going to rebuild the city. And uh, uh, someone pulls out a prophet or priest pulls out the book of Isaiah that had been written a hundred and a few years prior, and uh, they're looking at that, and they're reading chapter 40, and you're hearing, thank you for the joke, you're hearing about how the um, uh, the, the straight, uh, the, the hills will be brought low, the valleys will be brought up, a straight way will be made, and a Messiah will be coming, and someone is going to be that prophet who will proclaim the name of Jesus, how comforting that would have been. And then letter B, uh, we saw here um, the promise of the Messiah. The promise of the Messiah. This is where we spent the majority of our time last week. But let's just quickly review and not, uh, not get uh, uh, stuck in here too long. Look at verse 5. Notice a couple of phrases. All right, I'm going to highlight a couple of phrases. Notice the first one here. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Who is the glory of the Lord? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. For all have sinned, Romans 3 says, and come short of what? The glory of God. So all have sinned and fallen short of Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never once sinned. He never did anything wrong. Uh, He made it all the way from uh, cradle to ascension without ever, ever, ever doing anything wrong. He is the glory of God. When uh, my children come home from school and have accomplished something great, maybe they've studied hard for a test and come home with a 100%. Maybe they've participated in a, in a, in a uh, sport and they've taken first place or been the star of the team. Uh, they come home and there is a Shekinah glory, if you will, on my face. I'm a proud Papa Bear because my child has done so well. All the parents in the room that have had a child ever succeeded anything, you know what I'm talking about. When Jesus made it all the way through life and did not do anything wrong and then hung on that cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead, that is 
the glory of God. That is the glory of God, but we see not only the glory of God, Jesus wrapped in flesh, became one of us, but we also see the goodness of God. And uh, look down with me at chapter 40, and let's see here. Look down at verse number 6. The Bible says, The voice said, Cry, all he, all, and, and he said, What shall I cry? And he says, All flesh, notice this, All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the humanity of the field. So we saw how that uh, Jesus is the glory of God, but human flesh is the goodness of God. We went through it in Genesis 2-7 and saw how God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and then uh, opened Adam up and took out a rib and from that rib he made Eve. And uh, so uh, you have uh, God with his hands forming mankind, the prized jewel of creation is humanity. And is mankind the glory of God? No, but mankind is the goodness of God. We saw in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, how that God says, I formed thee in the belly, and even before that I knew thee. And we saw out of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, how man is goodly is when they're obedient to God's plan for their life. Uh, let us hear the whole conclusion of the matter, Solomon wrote, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. When I live my life and you live your life, uh, fearing God, reverencing God, having a reverential fear of God, and saying, Lord, not only do I not want you to hurt me, I don't want to disappoint or hurt you. I want to live my life in such a relational way that I respect you because you are greater than me and you're more holy than me and you're so much more infinite in every way than me and I respect you and I fear you, but yet I love you and I want to keep your Commandments, And when you go through life with that attitude, you show God the goodness of His creation. The goodness of His creation. So watch this. The glory of God, Jesus, is permanent. He uh, will exist forever. The goodness of God, of human flesh, that is temporary. One day we'll drop these robes of flesh and we'll head either to heaven or hell, depending on what we've done with Jesus. Now, I made this point, and uh, this is about where we end last week. I said we receive physical life from God the Father. All right? God formed you in the belly. We're going to be looking at Psalm 136 this Sunday as we continue our Sunday morning series of uh, walking with God, uh, my progress. We've looked at uh, our fruit uh, an increase in fruit, and then we've looked at, last week we looked at an intense faith, an intense intensity of faith. This week we're going to be focusing on uh, my fellowship, having an intimate fellowship with God. And, and the psalmist gets into how that God formed us in the embryonic stage. Uh, when we were nothing more than just a few clump of cells inside of our mother's belly, God was there forming us and and shaping us and involved in that way. And God the Father gives physical life. But watch this now. God the Son gives eternal life. You cannot have salvation unless at some point in your life you go to Jesus and you say, I believe in you alone is my way to heaven. God the Father gives everyone physical life. But you don't get to heaven until you go to God the Son. You take, watch this now, the goodness of God 
is temporary human life, you must go to the glory of God, Jesus, and get eternal life. Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat how that's laid out in Isaiah 40? Let's move on and talk about number three, and this is where we're going to get into some new material here. Notice Christ's ministry. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, we're given a very quick overview, a three-verse overview of the life and ministry of the Messiah. Now, for those of you that have not heard this, or maybe it'll be a review for others of you, the Old Testament Hebrew word is translated into English as Messiah, Messiah. The Greek New Testament word, the same word Messiah translated into Greek, translates into our English word Christ. And so Messiah and Christ are the same person. Same person. And when we hear Christ, we're often desensitized because people throw the name of Jesus or Jesus Christ around in such a vain, in a slang way. And it's been thrown around since all of us were, were small and even prior to that. And, and, and maybe it's lost its value. And I think that was probably Satan's plan to devalue the word Christ or the name of Christ. By the way, there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. And there's power in that name because of what's behind the name. That word Christ is the idea of a promised one. A promised one. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies. Jesus became the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. And so when we talk about Christ's ministry, we're talking about the one that was promised from the Garden of Eden and then promised to Abraham, and then promised to, um, uh, let's see, promised to um, uh, uh, Judah, and then promised to David, and then was reminded of in the prophets all the way through, and then came about through the womb, the virgin womb of Mary. Letter A, looking at Christ's ministry, go back to Isaiah 40 with me, notice the proclamation. The proclamation. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, and look at verse number 9. Verse number 9, the Bible says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, I want to make sure that we're keeping these verses in proper context. Remember, these verses were written to the Jews as they're leaving Babylon on their way back to rebuild Jerusalem, and in the years to proceed. Now, uh, much like now, we're in the church age, there is a book in the Bible that has been written to offer us comfort and to continue, uh, help us continue our journey. If you will, it is the carrot at the end of the stick for the church. Which book in the New Testament was written for that purpose? Someone tell me. Revelation. Very good. The book of Revelation was written so that the church would not get discouraged and quit. Hey, King Jesus is coming. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. He's going to come when the time is right. Now, I want you to think of Isaiah 40 and proceeding, the chapters to proceed, in the same manner. The promise of a Messiah was the carrot on the end of the stick. Hey, one day your Messiah is coming, and that day is coming soon. And you know what? It's been 2,000 years since the New Testament, uh, writing the New Testament was closed, the writing of the Bible was complete, and every generation has looked for Jesus to come. Right? And the temptation can be, well, maybe he's just not coming. I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Paul even thought he was coming back in his lifetime. All right? And Paul helped finish writing the New Testament 2,000 years ago. And two, that, that's a rough estimate. 
but 2,000 years ago. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the Lord still hasn't come back. Do you know that those same concerns were felt with Israel on his first coming? They kept thinking, yeah, uh, Abraham was promised 2,000 years ago that a Messiah was coming, and it took about 2,000 years for him to come. Now, um, the, the, the proclamation, we get to see this prophecy fulfilled in retrospect. But at the writing of this and the reading of this initially, boy, it was something that was just a, 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 an abstract idea in the future. But lo and behold, it did come to pass. Let's turn over to the Christmas story, Luke chapter number 2 and verse number 8. And we could read uh, all of the Christmas story, but you know the story, right? Uh, J- Joseph is a spouse to Mary. Mary is told by a, a, an angel that she's pregnant, and she says, how can this be? I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. And uh, the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit has put a baby in your womb. And so she goes to tell Joseph, I'm pregnant, but I've, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm clean. I've not done anything wrong. And Joseph rolls his eyes and says, yeah, right. Okay. How many women played that card, right, prior to Jesus being born? I'm the, I'm the chosen one. I'm the one that... Yeah, okay, you've been, uh, you, you've been promiscuous, you've been doing things by my back, and Joseph loved her, was going to put her away pri- privately or privily, and an angel came to Joseph and said, no, indeed she is of the Holy Spirit, and uh, she is still a virgin, and that in her is uh, the Christ child, and, and you need to stay with her. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. I love to picture this. And they were sore afraid. I bet they were. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Uh, Angels were chosen for this message to be proclaimed on that first Christmas Eve, or first Christmas night, and uh, it had been announced in Zion. Now, with that story in mind, go back to Isaiah 40 and look back at verse 9, and we see the, pro- the prophecy of this happening back in verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings. There were the angels. Get thee up into the high mountain. That's where they appeared. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Uh, God, the incarnation of the God-man, coming down to earth and being born amongst us. Isaiah 40, verse 9, uh, is the proclamation, uh, the prophecy of the proclamation, Christ's ministry, the proclamation letter B, uh, we see in verse 10, His power. We're looking at the ministry of Christ. Verse 10 talks about His power. Look at uh, verse 10, and now this verse is talking about His three and a half year earthly ministry. The Bible says, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. Now, there can be, it can be difficult to know, is this talking about the first coming of Christ? 
or the second coming of Christ. And I believe a case could be made for either. I'm going to stick with the first coming of Christ. I'm going to show you why. Turn over to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 in your Bibles. And we see that this prophecy of Jesus bringing his rewards with him healing and, and strength, and uh, we see that uh, uh, there, there being this um, uh, work that he has to do while he's here, all of this he makes reference to in John chapter 9. Look at verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 7. The Bible says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Look here. But the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he hath thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of uh, Siloam, which is interpreted, which is by interpretation rather, sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. You see this? This man was born blind and the disciples asked, Well, who sinned? You see the assumption here. Aren't we guilty of that? Assuming the worst, right? We see someone and we go, Well... I know what's going on there. Look, I've learned a long time ago, don't ever assume anything, all right? Stop and ask questions. Don't jump to conclusions, right? And so his disciples jumped to conclusions. Ah, this guy's blind over here. Uh, Who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says, listen, you got this all backwards. This isn't about sin. He was made this way on purpose, I made him blind because I have work to do. God sent me to work. What were the rewards in his hand? The rewards in his hand were to heal that man. What was the work before him to help him? Now, Christian, let me just say this to you tonight. I don't know what infirmity you're necessarily facing or what struggle that you chronically live with. But instead of saying, God, why is this in my life? What mistake did I make? Maybe back up and say, Lord, why did you give this to me? What, how are you going to bring about glory in this? You know, sometimes God gives someone cancer because he wants to bring glory to himself. He wants to do something miraculous. Uh, there was a, um, uh, my pastor when I was a teenager named Scott Toole. His uh, sister-in-law, her name was Joy. At 14 years old, she, Joy Chapel, she contracted cancer. And Joy was a sweet, godly young lady, pastor's daughter. Um, just as pure as the driven snow. Loved the Lord and loved others. She ended up dying as a teenager from cancer. And she's in and out of hospitals and children's hospitals and oncologist offices and Everywhere she went, she maintained a sweet demeanor and she gave the gospel to anyone that, was, that would listen. When Joy Chapel died, she had a room full of doctors and uh, nurses and, and uh, 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 nurses, just the whole hospital staff, 
many. Her room was filled with family. They put her in a large room and, and hospital staff and folks were weeping and crying because that young lady had so grabbed their hearts with the gospel. In fact, at her funeral, many of the hospital staff and oncologists and the practices around showed up and the gospel was preached and even more of them got saved. Why did God give that young lady cancer? All of those people were reached as a result. And uh, someone could say, well, who sinned? Well, we're asking the wrong question, aren't we? Sometimes God allows these infirmities in our life so that He can work a work. His reward is in His hand. He knows what He's doing. It is not our place to question Him. Isaiah chapter 40 predicted uh, the angels singing in Luke 2. Isaiah 40 predicted the miracles that would be worked and the people that would be helped and healed in verse 10. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. We see not only the proclamation and His power, but let her see, we see His purpose. His purpose. Look at uh, verse number 11. Isaiah chapter 40. The Bible says, He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. What a wonderful verse. Here we have a prophecy that this Messiah will be a shepherd. Well, if you know your Bible at all, you know where I'm going to take you. John chapter number 10. Turn over to John chapter number 10. Luke 19 verse 10, we get the mission statement of Jesus. And it sounds much like this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did Jesus come? He came to seek out the lost sheep and bring them to himself and save them. What is Jesus still trying to do? He's still trying to draw people to him to be saved. That Jesus is uh, still saving people today. Yes, he's been ascended for 2,000 years. No, he no longer walks planet earth in the flesh anymore. But Jesus is still saving souls today. Uh, the message of His life still goes forth. Uh, the power of His resurrection is still applicable. And those that are saved become part of a flock with, with which He is the Good Shepherd. Look at Luke, or rather John chapter 10 and look at verse number 10. The Bible says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Uh, when you are lost, you are underneath a, a regime where Satan is in charge, and uh, we look at uh, uh, Satan who is doing nothing but stealing, killing, and destroying. You look around at our world today, I can't stand watching the local news. I don't like watching the local news. You know what the local news is? This bank over here was robbed, and this person over here was murdered, and this house over here burnt down, and uh, this over here flooded, and it's just all of the sin, uh, sick, sin-cursed world, and story after story, headline after headline. Why? Because Satan is the prince and power of the air, and all we have is strife and contention. We have marriages filled with strife and contention. We have children who are rebellious and disobedient. Why? Because Satan is the prince and power of the the world and he's looking to steal our joy and kill our bodies and ultimately he wants to destroy God's creation of our soul in hell. Look at John 10, look at the next part of the verse. In contrast, I am come, Jesus says, that they might have life, but they might ha- and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Oh, these are such comforting words. 
The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hiring fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here we have a promise that when you put your faith in Jesus alone, He becomes your good shepherd. He brings you in, and Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, He carries you in His lap, He lays you in His bosom. What I have read and studied and understood about sheep is that they're very simple-minded creatures. Uh, they lack the ability to uh, foresee problems and take care of themselves. They'll eat a pasture until uh, it, it cannot grow back any more grass. They eat, and, and just across the hill, there's a whole new fresh pasture. They're not smart enough to walk over and look. Uh, they get frightened very easily. A storm's rage, and they stand there and tremble, or they'll scatter and run in a hundred directions and fall off the edge of a cliff. And a good shepherd, he, it, he is so good at bringing those sheep in and keeping them close and correcting them when they're wrong and comforting them when they're hurting and leading them to lie down in green pastures by the still waters and, and knowing exactly how to handle each one. In fact, when an enemy comes up, whether it's an animal or a thief, he puts his life down on the line to make sure that those animals are safe. Isn't that what Jesus did when He died on the cross? He laid down His life for the sheep. He suffered the he suffered the pain, he suffered the hurt, he suffered the danger of death on the cross. He laid his life down between him and humanity so that humanity could be restored back to God. What was the purpose of the life of the Messiah or of the Christ? It was to save the sheep. It was to rescue the sheep. It was and is to comfort the sheep. And I would say to you tonight, if you've not yet put your faith in Christ alone, He alone is your Savior. The message of the book of John could not be any more clear. Believe unto salvation. It's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus baptism. It's not faith plus uh, church attendance. It's not faith plus being a good neighbor. It's not faith plus any other thing you can add to it. Jesus paid it all, and we just simply believe in Him for salvation. That was the purpose of his life, to lay it down for the sheep. And so we see Christ's ministry. Number four, let's look at the next part here, next section of the, of the chapter. Let's look at God's might. God's might. The Bible is going to go on uh, in the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah is going to go on here and talk in great detail about how great our God is. Let's read 12 through 17, and then we'll come back and I'll, I'll break that out into an A, B, and a C. Verse 12, look here. He says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, 
and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or uh, being his counselor, hath taught him? Uh, with whom take, uh, taketh he counsel? And who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him uh, knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance, because he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. I see three ways that God's might is measured out or explained here. Letter A, we see his strength and size. His strength and size. Go back to verse number 12. This verse is, is amazing. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? All right, stop there. I've, I've referenced this verse many times in my preaching because this verse just blows me away, all right? Stop and think about uh, how much water you can hold in the palm of your hand, right? And take a water droplet, one of those things that drops water, one drop at a time, and put your hand out and just drop one in at a time and count how many until it starts to overflow the sides? You're not going to get to 7, 8, 9, 10. It's going to go running over. Now, with that in mind, go out to uh, South Beach here in Stratford and look out at that water and imagine that hand big enough to hold all of that at one, and just in the palm of the hand. The water you'd be staring at would be one drop in the bucket compared to all of the water on planet Earth. And he holds all of it in the palm of his hand. You say, well, that's metaphorical. I don't believe it is. I don't believe it is. God spoke the worlds into existence. There are other passages that say He created the heavens and then stretched them out. How can we see light, uh, 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 stars that are uh, uh, several million light years away? Because God created them close to earth and then with His hands He went, walk, and the light trails went with them. That's amazing. That means his hands, in fact, it goes on and tells us how big his hands are. Look at verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and meted out heaven with the span. What does that mean? A span is the distance from your pinky to your thumb uh, as far as you can stretch it. He measures the universe. He, he goes just like this. Up, oh, that's the Milky Way. And that's this galaxy. And that's this galaxy. And how little are we compared to a God that can just reach down and do like that to, to measure the Milky Way galaxy. He meets out the heavens with the span. Look at the rest of the verse. And comprehendeth the dust of the earth in a measure. All right, ladies, you're going to cook. Some of you men in here cook. You go out and get the measuring cup right out, and uh, maybe you're going to get a whole cup of flour, right? And you measure it in there. Up, oh, You shake it up oh, right at the cup line. Okay, pour that in. By the way, you can't bake if you don't measure. You all understand that, right? You ladies, just like a little pinch of this and a pinch of that. and throw, It doesn't work when you bake. It, may, it might work when you're cooking, uh, but uh, it doesn't work when you're baking. But the Lord takes the dust of the earth and He measures it much like a cook would a cup of flour. That's how big He is. Look here. And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. I think of a junior higher in a science classroom with a scale 
putting a little bit over here and a little bit over here, trying to get it weighed out just right. He takes all of the mountains that we scale to the top of and claim that we're king of the mountain, and he just measures them on scales. His strength and size, letter B, we see his sovereignty. His sovereignty. Look at verse 13. Isaiah chapter 40, look at verse 13. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? This is a rhetorical question. Or being um, his counselor hath taught him. And the answer to this rhetorical question is no one. No one has ever given counsel to the Lord. Verse 14. With whom took he counsel and instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him um, uh, knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Who's ever put their arm around the Spirit of God and said, let, 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 me, let me give you another perspective on that. Let me give you another way to look at that. Have you thought of this? Right? Uh, world leaders, such as prime ministers or presidents, they have a cabinet, a board of advisors, right? Chief executive officers of large companies, they have a, a board of other executive advisors that help them see and have various perspectives and make decisions. God doesn't have a board of advisors. The Spirit of God doesn't need someone to say, what do, you, what do you think about doing it this way? Why? Because God is sovereign. He reigns supreme. He needs no help instructing us on how to live and where to go. You know, that God never woke up one day and said, you know, I never thought of that. That never, that never happened to God. God never says, you know, that never occurred to me. It's all occurred to Him. God is everywhere. He knows everything. He is infinite in His knowledge of who we are. We're looking at the might of God. This is being highlighted. And again, the title of our Bible study is that God is greater than your circumstances. If God can measure the universe like this, if God can hold the waters of the world in His hand, if God can take all of the mountains of the earth and put them in a scale, if God can pick up all of the dust and shake it like a cup of flour, then your problem for God is nothing. Nothing. He is greater than whatever it is you're going through. And I would just say tonight before we move on that you need to stop and you need to quit hyper-focusing on the struggles of your life and instead hyper-focus on your God. Because He is so much greater than your circumstances. Letter B, we see His superiority. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles or the islands as a very little thing. Miss Melba and Brother Sean just got back from Puerto Rico. He just picks it up like it's a little Lego. Right? Like it's nothing. My brother, uh, my sister and brother-in-law live in Fiji. Fiji Islands. He just picks them up like you know a parent picking up toys off the floor. Look at verse 16. And Lebanon is not suffice to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. You go out in our lobby, uh, Miss Marcia's mom, who passed away some time ago, she left for the church that little children's bench out in the lobby the kids sit on. because She just loved kids. And, and so that was left behind in memory of her. And you know what? That bench works for kids. That bench doesn't work for me. I don't need to sit on that bench. And God looks at Lebanon and says, if I'm going to offer up burnt offerings, Lebanon is too little. The country of Lebanon would be too little for me to be able to operate with this. This is child's play. I'm too great. I'm too grand. This doesn't work. Look at verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing. 
and there accounts to him less than nothing in vanity. You know, all over the world right now, we have presidents and prime ministers and leaders of countries, and, and they're politicking and they're planning and they're conniving, and they're, they're trying to jockey for power and position. We've got the war over in uh, Ukraine and Russia, and there's a war going on over in old Burma, and um, uh, people are fighting and warring and, and, and trying to get out ahead. And, and you know what? Uh, governments think that they're so great and mighty and important, and presidents and kings are, are hailed and, and treated with great respect. And God says, all of the nations of the world collectively, to me and my power and my superiority, all of them co- total, all of them are put together, they're, they're nothing. They're nothing. God's might. And that brings us to the last point. We see God's majesty. And here is where we get into how God helps us overcome our fears. Now, Isaiah 40 is divided up into five chapters, or rather five paragraphs. If you have paragraph markers in your Bible, you'll see one at the beginning of verse 18. And that's the last paragraph marker all the way down through verse 31. And so I have divided the message up into five points because of the five paragraph markers. And those are the transitions and thoughts. Let's see how far we get into this. Letter A, notice the pride of the defiant. Now, Isaiah has done a great job laying out for us uh, all of um, uh, how great God is. All right? Listen. I don't know about you, I find great peace and solace in a God who has a master plan, right? Even in a leader that has a master plan. I don't find great solace in a leader that just seems to fly by the seat of his pants or the seat of her pants, right? You want a leader who's projecting and planning and has things in order. Uh, My wife will say to me when we're going on vacation, what are we doing tomorrow? And I'll say, it's vacation, we'll figure it out. No, wrong wrong answer. (laughs) We've been married 15 years. I've learned better now. But early on, it was, I'm like, to me, you know, we'll wake up when we wake up. We'll eat breakfast when we eat breakfast. You know, we're just going to kind of wind through and take it easy. No, we have to have a regiment. How many of you with my wife on this one? A regiment? How many of you with me on that one? Amen. The men raise their hand. Marcia raised her hand. Okay. Take it easy on vacay, right? Uh, but I, and that works on a vacation. That does not work in a company, in a business, right? Um, there needs to be some future casting. Here in Isaiah 40, we've seen future casting. Hey, Israel, calm down. A Messiah is coming. Hey, Israel, calm down. We know that your circumstances are great. You've been in captivity for 70 years. Calm down. Not only is a Messiah coming, hey, but your God is greater and mightier than all. Hey, Israel, calm down. God is in charge. Look at verse 18. Let's read down through verse 21. The Bible says, uh, To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye ye compare unto Him? And look at the puny comparison that's put up as a God. The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over uh, with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Uh, he uh, hath, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? 
Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? Hey, I just got through, Isaiah said, I just got through laying out for you that you have a God who measures the Milky Way. He measures the universe with the span. Uh, he holds the waters of the world in the palm of His hand. And instead of worshiping that God, you're going to go make a God out of gold. You're going to take uh, a piece of wood, wrap it in gold, uh, cast it with a silver chain, and you're going to bow down and worship that? That's crazy. And you say, well, I don't do that, Pastor. Okay, you may not do that, but what do you worship? Because anything that you devote more of your passion and time and energy to is your God. And all of those things are so little and small compared to an infinite God who made the universe. The, the pride, I put the pride of the defiant, and the reason why I put that is because uh, to turn and look away from a God who created all this and worship anything other than Him, you are proud and you are defiant. Letter B, notice the perspective of the diligent. The perspective of the diligent. Uh, look at verse 22, and then we'll read 25 through 28. Verse 22 says, It is He that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. The perspective we have is that God is above the earth. He sits on the circle of the earth. And that's a metaphorical phrase there. That all of us are like grasshoppers in His sight. But look down at verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? And bringeth out their host by number. He called them all by names, uh, by the greatness of His might, uh, that, uh, for that He is strong in power, not one faileth. Who sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. What is the perspective of the diligent? The perspective of the diligent is very simple. My God is bigger and greater and stronger than I am. Uh, I am nothing but a grasshopper in His sight. Nothing gets past Him. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent, ever-present. He is omniscient. He knows all. And on top of that, He's uh, omni omnibenevolent. He's ever-loving. Watch this now. Not only is God so powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth, He's personal enough to know who we are as individuals and love us there is nothing we can say do or think that gets past him why would we worship anything or anyone other than god why would we trust anything or anyone other than our god letter c we see the patient patience of the dependent the patience of the dependent look down with me at verse number 29 isaiah uh, 40. Look at verse 29. And this is where we get into just some uh, beautiful poetry. He giveth power to the faint. Is that you tonight? You're tired and weary? Life got you down? It's the Lord that energizes us and carries us through. And to them that have no might, He increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. Hey, look, you might be old and think, well, I'm, I'm just tired because I'm, I'm, my body is wore out from years of life and being beat down. The Bible says here that even the youth pushed to an extreme will faint. We shouldn't depend on our, our age or our might. No, instead we should depend on the Lord 
verse 31. Now that we have context, let's all read it together. Ready? Here we go. Isaiah 40, 31. Look at it. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall run and not faint. Listen, an eagle knows when a storm is approaching. And the eagle begins to very slowly circle his way up higher and higher. And then when the wind is blowing the storm in, that wind carries that eagle above the storm. Above the storm. And God wants to carry you above the storms of life. But you must focus on Him and not focus on your storms. You must focus on Him and ask Him for strength. And He will carry you through your circumstances, whatever they are. Listen, money can't, uh, money can't buy you through. Can't do it. Uh, you can have all the money in the world and still be lonely, poor, and, and, or lonely and miserable. Relationships will fail you. People will fail you. They're going to let you down. Even the most well-intended people will let you down. God is the constant that will never let you down. He's greater than our circumstances. This was the hope Isaiah gave to Israel as they were leaving Babylon in captivity and heading back home. And this is the hope that we can hang our hats on tonight, that God is greater than our circumstances. Let's stand together for a word of prayer tonight. I hope the Bible study was an encouragement to you. I know many of you are weary, and uh, I hope tonight you've been encouraged. Let's pray, and we'll go forth this week and continue to serve our Lord. We hope to see you again Saturday for our Great Commission Saturday. Be involved in getting the gospel to our community.